Okay, so today we're going to be in the book of Titus, and um, I want to read to you from 1 Timothy before we look at Titus. We have done this before, but I do sometimes think it's important to you, for you and I both to understand how's the church set up and what uh, is, exactly does the Lord want uh, for us, and, and what does it look like for a, a church to be healthy, and, and it's really a, a passage that you'll see a church that's not. Uh, in a healthy place, or churches, there's multiple churches that Titus will go to, and they're not in a healthy place. And so we're going to be talking about that. But I want to read 1 Timothy 4.16. It says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. It's, it's interesting, he doesn't say, and on your teaching. He's saying, on the teaching. So it's driving us back to the, the teaching of the apostles, which we see in, of course, the New Testament. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. And so there's this emphasis on a need for a healthy life and healthy teaching. And that's what you're going to see. And this goes for whether it's leadership or uh, the individual people within the church. You want to keep yourself clear of, of things that would get a, lead you away and walk in a way that would bring uh, glory and honor to God. And so I think it's important that we just... Think about that. It is really, it's, it's faith and practice. Sometimes you'll hear it preferred, uh, referred to. We are going to say more like practice and faith due to the way. That's kind of how we'll see that in Titus. So we need healthy churches. Uh, we need people living uh, healthy lives, um, lives that would bring glory and honor to God, lives that would bless other people, all of those things. So uh, what we might want to say, too, is sound teaching, that is healthy teaching, it, it produces, or, or it's the grounds, you could say, for sound living. So healthy teachings like the soil uh, that will produce like healthy plants that will then produce healthy fruit. And so I think that's important to say that. Now, oftentimes in Paul's letters, if you were to read them, you would, for instance, like Romans or Ephesians or Colossians, you would see faith or the faith. Not your personal faith, but the faith mentioned first, and then followed by practice. Another way you may have heard somebody say it is the indicatives are there, the state of being, and then the imperative, now you live this way. But in this letter, it's different, it's backwards. He starts with the practice and then talks about the faith. So the reason why is because I think Titus is going to a place where people are not practicing Christianity in the way that it ought to be practiced. And so uh, hopefully that will help you as we move forward. Um, sound teaching reveals who God's, God is, who we are, what Christ has done for us, and how we should respond to that. We should respond to that in gratitude, trusting in God's power, and then seeking to live a life that would bring Him glory. So he says to Timothy... Close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And so a church has to do that over and over and over, reminding ourselves of that reality. So we could say something like this. With God's help, we can continue to move forward as a church, living godly lives and teaching God's word so that God is glorified, Christ's church is built up, and the world can see and hear the gospel. That's kind of the way I would think about that. So hopefully you will see that as we move forward. Another thing that's interesting, Titus is a wonderful book for you to go and read because it's really easy to see uh, 
what his purpose is. It's smaller, and he states it in a very clear way. But you will see in verse 1, he calls himself an apostle, a servant of God, an apostle. Now, notice what he says right after that. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can open it up on your phone, your phone, whatever it might be, it would be helpful because we're going to look at a lot of text here. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So what he's saying is, is so that his people will hear the gospel and come to know him. Then, which accords with godliness, so that they will live a godly life. The apostolic ministry is about that. Preaching the gospel both to the unbeliever to bring them to the faith and the believer to build them up in the faith in the hope of eternal life so that they will finish the race. So that they'll finish the race. This has been God's plan throughout the ages, which he says, which God who never lies promised long ages ago. And he's bringing it to fruition now. So the church is a place where sound teaching and sound living should be normative. And that's kind of, again, what you'll see. Now look at verse 4. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So this man that he is writing to is like a child, a spiritual child in his life who is a grown person, and he's going to go into these churches under apostolic authority, act in a way as an elder. He's a young man, but he's, he's an elder in the sense of his life and doctrine, his abilities. He is going to act as an elder in a sense because he's not going to stay there forever. He is going to confront what's going on there, and then he is going to put people in place. So you might say, what is the purpose of this book? It's real easy because it's real helpful to read it and think about it this way. Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So it's multiple churches that he will go to. He's going to confront things, both false, I guess you could say, teaching with regard to the faith and false living with regard to practice. And so those things are going to take place. Now, if you think about this picture here set in order what remains it is like setting a bone if you fell and broke a bone some of you may have you'd be like I've done that and somebody came in and set that bone back in place and then put a cast on it it's setting what is out of order into order um, our garage used it still does at times but it used to stay in a chaotic state until last year with wonderful help I was able to kind of get that in order, you know, and we set it all up and we have like this little, I don't know what it's called, like slat wall in there and everything has its spot and you can go in there and be like, oh, this is where this goes and this is where that goes. But the biggest thing was right in the entrance of our house, there were shoes, hundreds of pairs of shoes. And so we researched what would hold all these shoes. And Anna and I finally came to this thing of these baskets, and it's this, I don't know, four-basket system, but it can be divided. Everybody's shoes have a place to go. And there's still this thing of people still leave shoes out. And so uh, it's kind of like this. I'm function I functioned as Titus and the elder left behind, right? And as Titus, I cleaned it up 
and got it in order, and as the elder left behind, Elder Jared, I walk up and say, this is chaotic. Everybody's getting a spanking if you don't get these shoes cleaned up. Does that make sense? So, okay, that might help you think about this. So you're setting in order what remains and then appoint somebody to oversee that order stays in place, kind of is the idea. By the way, if you've never read it, you could watch a video on lean manufacturing, and it says sweep, sort, standardize. That's what you try to do. And that's kind of what's going on in this church. We're going to clean it up, we're going to sort it, and we're going to standardize it, and we're going to go forward. Okay? All right, so that will help you in thinking about it. So Titus was going to go into these churches and do this thing. Now, I want you to look at verse 6. He has to appoint elders, and the way I think about it is, their character needs to be there. Their knowledge of the scriptures needs to be there. Their skill to communicate that needs to be there, and they need to have grit. Those would be kind of things that I think need to be there. So uh, if anyone is above reproach, so we start with their character. It's like nobody has anything bad to say about them. The husband of one wife, most passages would note like, a more, more literal way, maybe a one-woman man. But the idea is, if the person is married, are they committed to their marriage? Which was a big problem in Crete, as you will see. And his children are believers. Again, I think in this case, you could also see a little earmark on your Bible where it says they're faithful. The idea, I think, is uh, they are committed uh, to, to obey and live under the authority of their parents. They're not open to debauchery and insubordination, which helps you kind of think about, should we translate that faithful? Because debauchery and insubordination is not something that you might use all the time, but it means like wild living and not submitting to authority. Um, and the idea is, it's like this person is holding them accountable. It's a family man, but not in a family man where it's like he sits on the couch and does nothing but a family man that is uh, engaged in the life of his family and leading it well. Verse 7, for an overseer as God's stewards must, must be above reproach. Again, he returns this idea of reproach because he's going to talk about attitudes and actions that ought to be a part of his life. So remember, in this book, we're starting with practice, the practices that would be fitting for people in the church. And he says what he is not. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. So he gives us these four things. He must not think highly of himself. An arrogant person not only thinks highly of himself internally, it often works out in his language, in the words that he speaks, or the words that he writes, or the way of his demeanor. A quick-tempered person would be like, everybody can get upset. But someone, oftentimes someone arrogant who thinks really highly of themselves, quickly is upset. Because uh, they feel like they're threatened or somebody's going after them. That's kind of what they do. A drunkard, of course, is like, the, this doesn't, there's a passage in here in Titus 2 where it says, doesn't like condemn drinking, it's, it condemns drunkenness. Or violent, this would be another thing you would see. We're not going to go through each one of these because there are a long list in Titus, but I want you to see that they're not striking out at others. Or greedy for gain, like there was this deal, and you'll see this in, in just a few verses, where they're like, they will use their, like for instance, this platform 
to gain their own like wealth or whatever. So they would say, you know, if you'll, I mean, you'll see this in church history where it's like, you give more money, you're absolved of more guilt, you know, that kind of thing. It's not that kind of thing. So he's saying like they have to be people that are not doing that. They would not rob from uh, the church or, or however you want to say that. What is he? Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So the idea of hospitality in that context was uh, visiting uh, or taking care of strangers. And oftentimes, like, there were people that were uh, traveling along the way who experienced great trouble for their Christian life. And you're going to see this at the end of Titus 3, where there are these strangers that are going to show up to the church. And they, he, Paul says, like, there's a good work you can do. Take care of those people that you do not know, but who love Christ and are walking with him. Okay? So be hospitable, a lover of good, um, things that are right, things that are pure, you could say. Self-controlled, which that's all through this book. Um, he has to be able to restrain his desires. I always talk to my boys about it like you grab uh, the reins of a horse and you pull those, those reins back. And then you would like point that horse in the right direction. It's restraining those things and then, and then moving forward. Upright would be just living in a right way. Holy, of course, living in a pure way, you might say. Discipline, you could say he makes a habit of disciplining himself. That is, I mean, my first thought would be like pushing back from the table. But, I mean, it's not just that. It, it, but the, if you were to set the table, not necessarily with food, but with just all aspects of life of things, he's pushing back, and then he is um, able to also discipline himself to do things that are good. Years ago, a guy said to me, um, uh, make the things that you do, you got to think of them as being somehow profitable. You know, not, wa not time wasters, but somehow benefiting um, life in some way. Now, what does this person do? So we've talked about their character, and then he says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So the apostle had laid out the teaching. He says, you, he must uphold this truth as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict. So he knows the word, has a hold, a firm grasp on it. I mean, years and years ago, I realized that if I, and I, under good instruction from others, if you study the Bible book by book, you will have a greater understanding and you're playing the long game. You deposit that in over a 20-year period, and your knowledge of the Scriptures grows exponentially. And so what we've done is we've sought to do that, teach you through books of the Bible, so that I'm not just talking about my hobby horse, and you're always not, you're like, oh yeah, that's great, I've heard that, that one, that was a good one. But rather, you're learning all different types of things from the Word in a clear way, so that you may be able to instruct people in sound doctrine, teaching people the right way that we ought to go, and refute those who contradict. So if somebody is contradicting that, you can see it. You can smell it. You can see it. You can address it. Okay. We good so far? We started with practice with the elder, and then the doctrine, the, the teaching that would be sound and that kind of thing. And now we're going back to practice, and we'll hit on teaching a little bit here, okay? The next group that comes into Paul's list are the false teachers. 
For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, those are part of the circumcision party. What's he saying? Here, you have these people, rebellious people, you could say rebellious men, who are in the context of this church teaching things that ought not to be taught and living in ways that they should not live. They are not submitting to the apostles' teaching. They are trying to take the church back to the Old, uh, Old Testament law in a way that would not be honoring to God by trying to make, like, in a way, make them Jews. That's kind of the idea that they're doing. And so Paul's saying, like, these people have to be addressed, they have to be silenced. Now look at verses 11 through 16. They must be silent since they're upsetting whole families, teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of them, their own prophets, not even speaking about these guys, but speaking about the teachers maybe in Crete, says these people are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So here's the deal. Their practice, their practices, and their teaching are messed up. That's what he's saying. So you keep going, you can see that. But I just want you to see like verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So you've got Titus, go to Crete. It's a wild place. The churches are in disarray. You need to, as you practice kind of before these elders, you're going to kind of raise up here. You're going to practice for them what it means to teach what is sound, refute those who contradict, and, um, have, and build a healthy church. So, I want you to look at Titus 3, verses 9 to 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So, here's what he's going to say at the end. He's going to say there are people jabbering about all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with the teaching that we've received. And these kind of people, verse 10, who stir up divisions after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. So that's what you do. You get those people out. That's kind of the picture. So if you want a healthy church, you need sound doctrine. You need people preaching sound doctrine, refuting those who contradict so that the church can be healthy. Now, sound doctrine includes both the teachings about Christ and what he did for him in the gospel and how you live in light of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. So we're going to start with their practice. Notice what it says in Titus 2.1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he says, you know these old men. You know how, you know, how old men can be are they you, sometimes you're not necessarily Tim are you listening to me you ready no I'm just messing with Tim you're on the front row Tim I was just thinking about you you can smile like you know here's the thing with older men you want them to be wise just because you grow older it doesn't make you you like grow wiser by the way with Tim my oldest son William will want to call him and be like, Mr. Tim, he just explains everything to me. I'm like, come on, man. I, I probably told you that. But 
Tim. He always tells him what's up. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's a big thing to see. You need older men in a church. We always try to say we want a church that is multi-generational. People of all stages of life. Because people that are younger need people that they can look up to. Whether they're 10 years old, 15 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old. It's just nice to have people that you can look to, that you can call, and you can think about these things with them. And so what you need are the kind of people whose lives have been one step after another as following the Lord. Because it's always nice to have somebody around that has been walking with the Lord for a long time. And so you see, they're sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Again, still that thing of like restraining passions and desires and moving in a good direction. Um, they are healthy in the sense of like their sound in their faith, their love, and their steadfastness. It's like saying they trust in God, they love God in others, and they're holding on to the end. You want that. You want that around you, and you want it that regularly. Older women, again, what kind of practices are befitting? They are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So they're not drunkards. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women. So this is interesting. Here, there's this emphasis on the older women teaching the younger women the way that it means, well, like the way in which they ought to live. Look at what it says. They're teaching the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. Oh my goodness, there it is again. He's emphasizing practice to be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled reviled means like it's not spat upon reviled means it's not blasphemed kind of is the idea and so he's saying like look this is what th this is the these are the practices that ought to be there verse six likewise urge the young men to be self-controlled and you're like that's all they get one word or two words i guess self-controlled Maybe that's all they can handle, you know? I'm mean, often thinking about, why don't you just say self? But in a way, you think, well, my goodness, there's such a long list already. He's learned all these things. But, man, sometimes you just want to say to a young man, put on the brakes. Put on the brakes. Turn right. Turn left. Go straight. Just put on the brakes. Do not let yourself, as a young man, give yourself over to what you desire, what you crave, it will, it will destroy you. The whole book of Proverbs is about that. You restrain your passions and desires, and then slowly, I would say, move in the direction that you know is right and good and true. That would be the thing. Now, show yourselves in all respect. Now, here's the thing. Titus is young, as was Timothy. Remember what Paul said to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but live the life, because he's going to go and address elders and appoint elders. You live the life of that elder. You need to do that. But So you need to show yourself as a model for good works, which in a way that's really cool is when he goes there and the young men, it's a way of which Paul might say, 
hey, just you young men, look at Titus. And be a model of good works in your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, and be sound in speech that cannot be condemned so that your opponent ha- ha- may not put you to shame. Um, and they can't say anything bad about you. They'll find nothing to say about you because you are living a godly life and you are teaching godly teaching. So a solid church, we're addressing like, an un- like churches that are not solid but uh, here, but what we see is what he says is, look, you got to go in you got to confront the people that need to get out. They need to be addressed, addressed very swiftly. You've got to set up people who are sound both in practice and in doctrine. They're capable of teaching it. And then you, part of him setting things in order is to say, hey, um, and this is what sometimes called the household code, because in that context, older men and older women and younger women and younger men and bond slaves even, live together in the household. So he's going to speak both inside the church, but also kind of inside the house because of the, the context in which they live. So that, that's what he's doing. He is laying that out. Now look at verse 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters um, in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In this context, from what I've read and understand, 90% of people in the first century were bond servants, even highly skilled people, people that had great skills that we would today say, what, they, could, they, they are the people that are served. In that context, um, many of them would be in that status. And so in that world, Paul's not saying do away with that human institution. He's saying live well in the institution that you find yourself in. However, later you will see in the Christian tradition people standing up and saying, like, this system is corrupt, and it will be addressed in time. And it's been addressed across the world, in America, in England, all those things. So I think it's important to understand that. But I do think at the, at the heart of this, and maybe you could say in some small way, that when you go to work, you think in terms of these things. It's not the same, but it has some similarities. So that you're not stealing, you show all good faith, you, you, you do the right things. You're not argumentative, you do what you ought to do. Now, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. It's almost like he's saying, put on these clothes, that a behavior that puts on clothes that, is, that are pleasing. That, that people would say, oh my goodness, it's, a, it's an aroma that comes in the room with them in, in the way that they work and the way that they act. You know, it's almost like you think about Joseph in Genesis, the way in which Joseph lived and acted benefited those around. Daniel was the same way, even though he was attacked. Okay, so then you're asking the question, okay, we've talked about inside the church. We talked about leadership. We talked about inside the church. But what about outside the church? Can we be real mean outside the church and ugly? I... Uh, just watched the Andy Griffith episode, and there's this one where Andy's trying to help this couple have a better marriage, and so he gets them to start saying stuff like, I love you, dear, and all this kind of stuff, and they're all like smiling at each other, and, and they started using the language and all that, and at first they were really grumbling, I love you, dear, you know, stuff like that. Well, then they start getting warm towards one another, so you know what happened? Then they attacked everybody in the town. That's kind of what, you know. Um, so the deal is, it's like 
okay, that's not what we're going for. Act foolish. Uh, you know, we're not, now we're cleaning up the home and cleaning up the church, but now how do we do, deal with the outsiders? Well, I know we skipped a couple of verses. We're going to get back to them. Ready? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Now, that's interesting. We have a dual citizenship. We are both have a heavenly citizenship and an earthly citizenship in our present state. And um, it's important to know to wear that dual citizenship appropriately. That, that's the idea, that you would wear it appropriately. And what that means is, is that in light of your heavenly citizenship, because you're looking past your earthly kind of citizenship sometimes, you're looking to your Lord and then you are blessing those that you are under. And you are under the authority of the governing officials in our country. We don't have time to go through all of those, but you're under their authority. And so you submit to them and you submit to their authority as the Lord would have you do unless they have forced you to go against the word of God, as we see with the apostles. And so we submit to the authorities. God has placed them, Romans 13 says, as ministers of God to punish the wicked and protect the innocent. And you submit to the authorities that you have. Now, to be ready for every good work, this is kind of like, to me, like being a good citizen, to be a good neighbor, to do the things that are called upon you as a citizen of whatever place that you're in, your town, your state, your country, whatever that might be, or in the world, to be a good citizen in the world, you might say, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So there, there it is. We have... Get the leadership stuff straight. Teach the people how to live within their families and within the church. Teach them how to act on the outside. And then you say, well, okay, we've talked about practice. There's big push on that. Now you want to go back to Titus 2, 11 through 15 with me real quick. Because I want to talk to you about the faith that grounds it. I want you, I want you to understand the faith that grounds this teaching. You ready? In Titus 2.11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke it with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What's he saying? Jesus came to say, you were imprisoned in your corrupted state. Jesus came to rescue you from that. Jesus did not just come and say, hey, follow my example and leave you powerless. He went into the prison and broke you out of prison by becoming your substitute. And set you free with life to live differently. He did not come just to give you an example. Although he did give you an example, he came to give you the power to be set free from your old wicked ways. That's important to know because that grounds all of this. For him to just come and say, hey guys, look at my example. You would not make it. None of you'd make it. None of you would ever move in a way that would be pleasing to God. You needed Jesus to come and rescue you. He is training you. He is training you in his redeeming of you. 
he, again, he stormed the powers that held us captive, captive and defeated them by living on this earth like we should have lived and dying on the cross like we should have died. He did that for us. He was victorious over them at the cross. He was resurrected. I mean, after he spent three days in the tomb, on the third day he was resurrected and he was victorious over all of our enemies. But I want you to see another thing. You ready? We're almost finished, so y'all can hang with me a couple more minutes. Also, this other kind of thing that speaks to this transformation, Titus 3.3. For we all ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray. So everybody, everybody in a corrupt state. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saved us. He saved us by his mercy. He did this with the washing of regeneration. You see this idea of cleansing, which is like displayed in baptism today as you saw that, Baptism is a visual picture of the spiritual transformation that is brought about by the Spirit. Someone goes down into the water, buried with him in baptism, comes up out of the water, raised to walk in newness of life. Regeneration takes you from spiritually dead to spiritually alive so that you can live a spiritual life to the glory of God. And then he renews you. It's not just this one moment that he wakes you up, but then the renewal of the Holy Spirit is an on going renewal that allows you to live a godly life and so i'm going to just stop there and just say to you when you think about the church it is it is like you're thinking about the faith like that jesus came to save us and set us free and send the spirit and bring life to us and bring us to christ and all that and you're thinking about the practice of the faith or living in light of the faith and today, that lays out both. If you say, for instance, oh, I'm a Christian, but I do not live for Christ, I would say, don't say you're a Christian. Christianity is an inside-out thing. When God does a work in your heart and regenerates you, He also stays with you. And what that means is, when God brings new life to you, he is working out of you what Paul said. He said, like, what Christ, what he began in you, he is going to bring it to pass. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we are to walk in them. And we will. By the power of the gospel, we will. And so today you may have seen something you're thinking, woo, I'm not walking in that. I'd say repent. Some of you may say today, oh, you know what, I am but I really need to grow in this area. You need to pray and say, Lord, let me believe what you've said in your word and then walk in that. And so just pray for us as we pray for you that that would be true of all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Give us hearts that long to live out what it means to be a New Testament church. In Christ's name, amen.